The sermon text for this morning is Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9, as we continue working our way through this wonderful book that describes how God fulfilled his promises to Abraham, his promise to bless Abraham with the land of Canaan and with numerous descendants, how that promise came to pass just as God said. We learn in in this chapter, in Joshua chapter 9, we learn specifically about our need as Christians to remain vigilant against uh, Satan's attacks. The Bible teaches us that Satan is the leader of uh, fallen angels, that he is our adversary, that he, along with the world and with our own flesh, with the sinful uh, remnants of our flesh that continues to remain in us, these things continually wage war against our souls. And so when we, we think about uh, our enemy, when we think about Satan, uh, we need to know, loved ones, that he is a defeated enemy, that his power is limited to what God allows him to do, but he is nonetheless a dangerous enemy. And he, as Peter says, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour as we see in our text this morning, uh, his attacks against believers vary. Uh, you know, Satan doesn't have just one way of coming at us, of coming against us, but he changes his tactics in order to try to overtake us. And the first kind of tactic described in Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, is his direct attack against believers, his direct attack against the church. We read there in Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, that as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan heard of Israel's victory over Jericho and Ai, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. And we see in these verses that these kings believed the old adage that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they allied together in order to fight as one against Israel. And you know, at first glance, when we read those first two verses, it might seem like what these kings were doing was simply uh, pragmatic, that here they were uh, making a political alliance in order to oppose the nation of Israel that was coming at them. We might think that, hey, you know, they were simply doing what many nations have done in history in creating alliances and agreements in order to be stronger uh, during times of warfare. It seems like a common sense move, right? In light of this danger that Israel that is coming against them, it seems like a common sense move for them to ally together. Beloved ones, if we look at the text more closely, uh, we see that these kings we're not just opposed to Israel as a nation, as a, we might say as a political entity, uh, but they were actually opposed to God himself. They were opposed to God himself. Look, for example, at what the Gibeonites confessed after their deception was uncovered. They confessed, because it was told to your servants for a certainty, that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses 
to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing, did this deceiving thing. Notice how these Gibeonites specifically mention Yahweh, the God of Israel. They specifically mention that he was leading Israel in its victory over the nations that stood against and that stood opposed to him. And so the Gibeonites, they were aware that God was fighting for his people. And they refused to bow down to him in worship and submission. See, it wasn't just that they didn't want to give up their land, but they didn't want to submit to the one true God. The Gibeonites were aware that God was fighting for his people. You know, this was also made very clear in Rahab's own confession. You might recall from Joshua chapter 2. Remember that Rahab lived in the city of Jericho, the first city in the promised land that um, Israel invaded. And when the spies first went into Jericho to scope out the city, um, they met Rahab. Remember she said to them in Joshua chapter 2, beginning of verse 9, she said, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. See, we hear from the lips of a pagan, of a Canaanite, we hear that the inhabitants of the land knew that they were not just opposing another nation, but that they were opposing the one true God. And they were, we might say, thereby suppressing the truth that they knew about him in unrighteousness. They were living in open defiance. And so what we read here is not just about opposition to uh, Israel on a physical plane, but it's on the spiritual plane. It's opposition to God. See, loved ones, Satan here was amassing his forces against God and against his people in order to try to hinder God's plan. And this is why it was right and it was just for God to command Israel to devote the people of the land to destruction. See, because the people that were living in Canaan, that were living in that land, were living in opposition to God. God was patient with them for centuries, but when their iniquity was complete, as God said in Genesis 15, the judgment that he brought on those living in Canaan was just judgment for sin. See, had they repented, had the people in Canaan repented like Rahab did, they would have been saved. They would have been spared from judgment. Rahab is is the example to all of us that God is gracious to all those who come to him in faith as Rahab did. But that's not what we see with most of the inhabitants of Jericho, 
of Ai and of the other cities in the promised land. These kings especially who united together, who allied together against God. We read the same idea in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 that we read this morning for our first reading begins, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. See, this psalm here describes the world's united opposition against God's Messiah. And, you know, in light of the world's united opposition, we might be led to despair, to lose hope as believers, because when we think about the nations of the world, we think about their power and their weaponry and their might, especially when they join forces together. It seems as though they might be unstoppable. But what is God's response to their united opposition, their united sinful opposition to him? Verses 4 through 6, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, loved ones, God laughs at their rebellion. He laughs as the forces of evil and the forces of this world join together against him. He laughs because he knows that they are powerless against him. He laughs because he knows that his purpose will come to pass. That Christ, though opposed, will rule and he will reign forever. See, while the alliance that these Canaanite kings formed at the beginning there of, of Joshua chapter 9, while it might seem overwhelmingly powerful according to human standards, we know that they were as nothing in God's sight. You know, even today, the direct attacks upon Christ's church, we know that they have a spiritual source. Satan continues to try to destroy the church through persecution, uh, through oppression, and, and through the influence of sinful people. The Apostle Paul, he describes the spiritual source of some of these direct attacks against Christ's church. He writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, loved ones, while it is tempting for us to lose hope, we need to remain steadfast by remembering that we are certain of the outcome. Satan will be destroyed. At this very moment, the word assures us that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. I like how J.I. Packer describes the optimism that we as Christians should have in light of Christ's sure, full, and final victory in the last day, his final victory that will happen over Satan, sin, and death. J.I. Packer writes, 
acknowledging uh, Satan's reality, taking his opposition seriously, noting his strategy and reckoning on ways, uh, always being at war with him. Uh, This is not a lapse into a dualistic concept of two gods, uh, one good, one evil, fighting it out. Packer says, Satan is a creature. He's superhuman, but he's not divine. He has a lot of knowledge and power, but he is neither omniscient nor omnipotent. He can move around in ways that humans cannot, but he is not omnipresent, and he is an already defeated rebel. Having no more power than God allows him and being destined for the lake of fire, for full and final destruction, that destruction that we read about in the book of Revelation. Loved ones, as we see in our text this morning, Satan often amasses direct attacks against the church. But we also read about another type of attack that Satan uses, and that is a deceptive one. That rather than coming head on with uh, easy to identify opposition, Uh, Sometimes he uses deception and lies in order to try to weaken the church from within. You know that the Gibeonites were unbelievers. Uh, They were part of the idolatrous people in Canaan. And we know that from Joshua chapter 9, rather than repent and and believe as Rahab did and, and thereby be saved from the judgment that God was bringing upon the Canaanites, the Gibeonites instead used deception in order to secure a treaty with Israel. See, they were were smart enough to see that they wouldn't stand a chance against Israel's God, even if they allied with the other nations and people groups around them. But they were unwilling to turn to him in faith as Rahab did. And so, therefore, they devised a plan, and they disguised themselves to look like they were from a faraway land. And and children, you could almost imagine all the the steps that they went through in order to try to to look like they had traveled a great distance, like they had come from somewhere outside of the promised land. And they came in disguise to Joshua in order to make a covenant, make what would have been something like a peace treaty in that day. It's interesting that the Gibeonites uh, seemed to know that that God had forbidden Israel from making covenants with people who lived in the promised land, but he did allow them to make covenants with people who lived outside of the land. And this is why the Gibeonites claimed that they were from, we read, a distant country, and, and then showed all their evidence for it the dry bread, the clothes that were worn out, the sandals that were worn out, and so on. You know, it seems at first, like from what we read in the text, not all of the leaders of Israel believed the story that these uh, travelers were telling. In fact, in verse 7, we read that the men of Israel said, perhaps you live among us. How can we make a a covenant with you, right? They're suspicious. And then we see that the Gibeonites, in response, pushed back. They they doubled down on their story and 
and they even produced more false evidence that they were from a far country and that uh, they had traveled a long way in order to make peace with Israel. And we might ask as we analyze this situation, you know, what was the danger here? Why was this ruse, this deception, so dangerous? Loved ones, the danger was that if the Gibeonites succeeded in their deception of Israel, well, then they would remain in the promised land, and they would therefore be a source of temptation and idolatry for Israel. They would be a source of temptation and idolatry for Israel. See, uh, God's intention in commanding Israel to remove all the people from the land was in order to limit the corrupting influence of those people upon Israel. See, God's desire was that Israel would be in the land and would be there worshiping him as the one true God. And, and through their pure worship, they would therefore be a blessing to all the nations. They would therefore point unbelievers to Yahweh. This is uh, the commandment that God gave to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 through 18. The commandment was, you shall devote everything in the land to destruction. That includes the religious shrines, the idolatrous temples, and even the people. You're to devote them to destruction so that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you then sin against the Lord your God by bowing down to their idols. See, this was the danger of the Gibeonites remaining in the land. And what we see in our text this morning is that, sadly, Israel fell for the deception. The central verse is verse 14. So the men of Israel sampled some of their food, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. They did not ask counsel from the Lord. Then verse 15, And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. See, Joshua and, and the leaders of Israel failed, we might say, big time at this point in their leadership. We see in the text that they were initially, yes, skeptical about the travelers from this distant country that they spoke of. They were suspicious, but they still fell for the deception that they were selling. And they, they fell for the deception, we read, because they did not ask counsel from the Lord. It's interesting that God had provided Joshua a way for him to seek counsel in situations just like this. You remember that when Moses was leading Israel, Moses was able to talk to God directly. In Exodus, we read that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. But when Moses died, and, and then Joshua replaced him as the leader of Israel, Joshua did not have that same kind of direct communication with God that Moses had. And so instead, what God provided Joshua, he provided Joshua with communication through Eleazar 
the high priest. God instructed Joshua that when he was facing a circumstance in his leadership that you know, wasn't clearly explained in the book of the law, that Joshua was to go to Eleazar, the high priest, and we read that Eleazar would use the Urim and the Thummim to determine God's will. Now, the Urim and the Thummim were similar to Lot's, and God said that he would help Joshua in his leadership by communicating with him in this way. But what happened? What happened was Joshua failed to seek counsel from the Lord. This was the requirement that Joshua had. The requirement was God provided a way for him to seek counsel, but the failure was that Joshua did not use the means that God had provided for him. Instead of seeking counsel from the Lord, Joshua and the leaders of Israel, we read, walked by sight rather than by faith. They were probably too self-confident, and as a result, we read that they fell for the Gibeonite deception. One commentator writes, at that point, nobody asked God what they should do. This is the tragedy of the situation, that if the enemy cannot batter down the front door by a direct attack, as we learned in verses 1 through 2, he will then slip in by a side entrance in order to compromise God's people in their fulfillment of God's will. He will try an indirect attack. This is Satan's uh, mode of operation. Jesus said that Satan is a murderer and that he is the father of lies, that he was the first liar and that he is the source of all the falsehood and all the deceit in the world. At one point in his ministry, Jesus confronted the religious leaders because they were accusing him of uh, not, uh, not just uh, not being the Messiah, but accusing him of being possessed by demons and saying uh, that the miracles that he was doing were under the power and done by the power of Satan himself. And as the religious leaders were spreading these lies, when Jesus confronted them, he said, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. See, Satan deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. How? By lying to them. And he has been deceiving and lying ever since. As Jesus said, he is the liar and the father of lies. But, loved ones, God has given us a way to effectively cut through his deceptions, Satan's deceptions. We have the scriptures. We have the Lord's completed word that is given to us. It is identified as the sword of the Spirit. But we have to consult it. We have to read it and to know it and, and prayerfully ask the Lord to impress it upon our hearts and upon our minds so that when we are, dis, uh, when we are 
bombarded by Satan's lies, when we are bombarded by the world's deceptions, we know how to separate what is true from what is false. In the past couple of years, the well-known term in much of our media has been the term fake news. And, and it's thrown out there every time somebody wants you to question what you're hearing. It's fake news, fake news. And we also know that uh, the times that we are living in is very much often identified as a postmodern time. That it's a time where, you know, it's not just that people don't believe what is true, but they say that everything is true. Your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, and no one can say that anybody, that anybody is wrong. And more recently in... And the news um, is the uh, idea of deep fakes. I don't know if you have all heard about this, uh, but deep fakes are computer-generated videos and, and audio files that look and sound like they are real. It's very hard to distinguish whether or not they are actually real. And, and in this culture of falsehood, of lies and of deception that we are in, how can we know what is true? Loved ones, God has given us his word. His word that is not just half true, but that is completely true. It is the means whereby we can sift through what is true and what is false because God's word is truth and it points us to Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. And thirdly, we see in our text, we see God's covenant faithfulness on display. Because soon after the uh, covenant with these so-called travelers from a far country was made, we see that Joshua and the leaders of Israel realized that they were actually the Gibeonites. They actually weren't from a far country. They were from 20 miles away, literally, you might say, down the street. Right? They, they were Israel's neighbors at this point. And it's amazing to see that, that Joshua after realizing his error and, and his foolishness, the way that he hastily made this covenant without consulting the Lord, that Joshua at this point did not try to break the covenant. He did not try to break the peace treaty that he had made with the Gibeonites. Instead, he honored the oath. We read, beginning in verse 18, but the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murder, murmured against uh, the leaders, but all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. They kept the covenant. And even, even centuries later, when King Saul killed some of the Gibeonites in order to try to rid Israel of them, uh, Israel, as a nation, suffered a famine because of what Saul did. See, the covenant remained in place from generation to generation. And it's important for us to ask this morning, why did Joshua and the leaders of Israel keep their covenant with the Gibeonites? We might, we might think, you know, hey, this was made under false pretenses. Why not just break it and be done with it? Well, loved ones, they kept the covenant 
because covenants are serious business in the Bible. The covenant that Israel made with the Gibeonites was made, we read in the text, in the name of the Lord. See, our God is a covenant-keeping God. He will never go back on his word, and he will never break his covenant with us. And so Joshua and the leaders of Israel, we read, wisely refused to add to their first sin by then breaking the covenant that they had entered in with the Gibeonites. They refer, refused to add sin to sin. An example of this might be the marriage covenant that people enter into today. Husband and wife go before a pastor during a wedding ceremony. What happens there is that they enter into a marriage covenant. And you know the question arises, what if after marriage a Christian discovers that the person that they married wasn't who they expected him or her to be. Is divorce at that point appropriate? Well, the answer the Bible gives is, no, it's not appropriate. Marriage is a covenant that needs to be honored. But we also read in the Bible that God will give his people grace and, and will bring good even out of such situations, as God did here with the Gibeonites, that we read as their lives were spared, they were at the same time made cutters of wood and drawers of water for the tabernacle worship. Now, this means that they were helping the Levites in uh, preparing and in conducting the worship. And they were helping specifically by bringing the wood that was necessary to keep the altar's fires going for the sacrifices, and they were to bring the water that was needed for uh, the ritual washings. And providing wood and, and water was menial work, but what we see is that this was God's way of using even the sins and the mistakes of his people for his glory of using even the sins and the mistakes of Israel's leadership and turning those things into the fuel for his glory. Because by making them servants in his house, the Lord was ensuring that the Gibeonites would never enter into Canaanite places of idolatrous worship again. He gave them a job in his tabernacle in order that they might never return to Canaanite worship again. See, now they were employed to work for God in his place of worship. Loved ones, what is God teaching us about himself in this story? One commentator explains, we are meant to see God's overruling, sovereign hand in everything that happened between Israel and the Gibeonites. See, the devil's attacks and his people's weakness could not stop or hinder his plan. That what was meant for evil, God turned it for good and for his glory. This incident is, is clearly a, a different sort of attack on God and his purposes. A different sort of attack that came from Satan. It was much more cunning and subtle than the outright hostile aggression that we often see so clearly in the world. But this attack 
was nonetheless real. See, the Gibeonite deception had all the marks of the devil's lies. And so it seems likely that this incident represents an attempt to corrupt Israel from within, to destroy Israel from within by bringing Canaanite idolatry and immorality into the very heart of the nation. This was Satan's attempt to stop the worship of the living God. And how did God deal with Satan's scheme? Well, he used the very people who posed a threat to his worship, and he engaged them in his worship. The Gibeonites were employed in the house of God. God's overruling providence turned the very thing that Satan planned for Israel's destruction. He turned it into goodness and blessing for Israel and for the Gibeonites. This is the glory of our God, loved one. That he, he cannot be outmaneuvered by human cunning and uh, outmaneuvered by Satan's schemes. Glory, God's glory is shown in the grace that can turn a curse into a blessing. That can use our mistakes and foolishness and use that to bind us more closely than ever to him. That can reveal where we went wrong and make it become the means by which we can then begin to go right. Because it appears in Scripture, after Joshua chapter 9 and this covenant that Israel made with the Gibeonites, it appears in the rest of Scripture as though the Gibeonites were included among the people of God. We read in Nehemiah chapter 7 that they returned among the exiles during the days of Nehemiah to help rebuild the walls. We read in 1 Kings chapter 3 that their city was a place where God appeared to Solomon. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, their city was a place that featured the tabernacle of God. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, their city was a place that featured the worship of God. Loved ones, this is our God, our faithful covenant God, who is able to bring uh, light out of darkness hope out of despair, life out of death, even blessing out of cursing. This is most clearly seen in the cross. The cross that was the emblem of suffering and shame, the cross that was devised by man in order to bring shame to the Messiah. God used that very cross to bless his people This is the kind of God that we serve. All praise and all glory be to him. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we do pray this morning that you would protect and preserve your church against Satan's direct attacks. That you would protect and preserve your church against Satan's covert attacks and that you would today and every day cause us to rest in your covenant faithfulness, that even though we sin, to know that you are ready to forgive and to turn even our mistakes into fuel for your purposes and for your glory. We pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.